Donald Trump's lawyers, including Alina Haba, are sanctioned $50,000 by a federal judge in Florida for filing a frivolous lawsuit that was dismissed by the court. This is the first of many sanctions motions that have, that have been filed, and the judge is set to hear the rest of the sanction motions that are filed by other individuals who were sued, including Hillary Clinton, who are seeking more than $1 million in sanctions. Donald Trump has filed his opposition in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals to the appeal filed by the Department of Justice in the case where Trump stole thousands of government records, including the nation's most top secret records, and hid them at Mar-a-Lago and then got a judge he appointed, Judge Eileen Cannon, to interfere with that said criminal investigation. The 83-page brief filed by Trump is 83 pages of complete nonsense and rehashed arguments that the Court of Appeals already rejected when the Department of Justice succeeded in their motion for stay. We will tell you why Trump will lose. The Trump Organization, of course, is a criminal defendant in the case brought by the Manhattan DA's office, and that trial resumed after a key witness, the controller of the Trump Organization, had COVID last week and was like coughing on everyone. But he came back and in blockbuster testimony this week, his name is Jeffrey McConney, he testified that Donald Trump was aware of the fraudulent tax avoidance scheme that is at issue and also that there could be obstruction of justice that someone deleted notes from trump's accounting ledger that was submitted to the grand jury he thinks that someone is donald trump and donald trump filed a lawsuit in the southern district of florida to block his testimony before the january 6th committee which was set for november 14th and look we had no doubt here that that traitorous coward would never show for a deposition and finally a horrible judicial ruling down in Texas by a Trump appointed judge Mark Pittman who declared the student debt cancellation program by Biden to be an unconstitutional use of executive power and blocked its implementation the Biden administration will of course file an appeal but will go to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals look this is a big problem and we will discuss this horrific ruling that just completely lacked merit but we will break it down and tell you what happens next. The most consequential legal news. This is the post-midterm election edition of Legal AF. While we are recording, though, we don't know the full results of the midterms, but by and large, a repudiation of Donald Trump, a repudiation of MAGA extremism and the red wave doom and gloom that everybody talked about did not happen. We can say that with certainty, certainty here. I'm cautiously optimistic Democrats will maintain control of the Senate. We are waiting for results in the House. The path there is more difficult, but still possible as of the time of this recording, but a big repudiation of MAGA extremism. So Michael Popak, I'm feeling good today. I'm feeling great. And I don't know if you noticed, but I have I got a clean a clean shave to start the post midterm 
world. I, I got really excited and decided to shave off my beard. So, but let, let's look at it. Let's look at it from the in the, the post midterm uh, lens through the post midterm lens. When you and I started all of this a couple of years ago, we wanted to focus on the role of law in politics and politics in law. And just as a backdrop to all of this, this is show you how tin-eared our Supreme Court is, or at least the right-wing majority of the Supreme Court. Just two days after the election, the repudiation that you just outlined, with many voters activated, as we, as we thought, as the Midas brothers preached, by the Dobbs decision, the Roe versus Wade uh, overturning of a woman's right to choose, just two days after that, four of our right-wing justices, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, and Alito dropped their masks, donned their tuxedos, and went to the 40th anniversary of the Federalist Society, where they not only sat in the audience, but were feted to huge congratulations and celebrations by this audience for a job well done in the Dobbs abortion decision. I mean, just to show you, this is, this is really Nero fiddling while Washington is burning. That's not where the American people are, but that is where this U.S. Supreme Court is that you and I are going to have to continue to monitor throughout this term. Yeah, and we're going to talk about on this episode this horrible decision by Mark Pittman, a Trump-appointed judge uh, in Texas, and efforts were made by the Federalist Society across the country, and they coordinate it. This is what they do. They flood the zone and file lawsuits everywhere, and they have these proxy groups for them that are fronts for their radical extremist agenda of cruelty. And so people are wondering, well, wh what happened in Texas with this student loan case? I thought there was a case that was taking place in Wisconsin. And what about the case in the Eastern District of Missouri? And didn't Judge Amy Coney Barrett, didn't she reject one of the emergency applications to the Supreme Court to stop, uh, the, 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 uh, based on a standing argument, the implementation of the student debt cancellation program? Didn't she rule that it couldn't be um, overruled? So what's going on here? No, they just flooded the zone with lawsuits basically everywhere. And they drew this Mark Pittman guy, this Trump judge, the same judge who's basically ruled in favor of COVID. He's like the pro-COVID judge. Um, and they drew Mark Pittman and he ruled that it was unconstitutional and, and blocked the program. And this is what the Federalist Society does. It's cruelty, but the American people are recognizing what's taking place, though. And so at least that is one of the lessons that can be drawn from these midterm uh, elections. But let's get right into it, Popak, with uh, the sanctioning of Trump's lawyers, including uh, Alina Habba. You know, look, she goes on TV and gaslights everybody on the MAGA extremist right wing media. But we've talked about it here. She's like the worst lawyer uh, in the entire country, because to me and, I, and it kind of comes through in the judge's order here because it does blend this incompetence. But what the judge even says in his order is that it's more than just incompetence. So literally in the order, the judge says every claim that was filed in this lawsuit was frivolous, most barred by settled law, well-established existing law. These were political grievances masquerading as legal claims. This cannot be attributed to incompetent lawyering. It was a deliberate use of the judicial system to pursue 
a political agenda. But to me, it's this melding of incompetence and manipulating our legal system, which to me makes her both the worst and most dangerous lawyer in the country doing literally everything Trump tells her to do in court. Remember, this case relates to, it's a RICO or racketeering, that's what RICO stands for, a racketeering lawsuit that was brought against 29 individuals, basically alleging that they hurt Donald Trump's reputation in 2016 by linking him to Vladimir Putin and Russia. It was barred by, they filed it, let me just say, they filed it in the Southern District of Florida they drew Judge Donald Middlebrooks. They tried to uh, get Middlebrooks off the case. They filed a motion to disqualify him, and they tried to get the case in front of Judge Eileen Cannon. Before anyone knew who Judge Eileen Cannon was, Middlebrooks put out an order. It was like in May, so it was before the search warrant issues. And he goes, I know what you're doing. You're trying to disqualify me to go in front of Cannon, and that's an improper basis of trying to disqualify me. Um, they filed first that their original complaint Trump filed was in March. They then amended the complaint in like June, adding 193 more frivolous paragraphs to this thing. And like it literally read like Donald Trump's ranting and ravings on Truth Social put together in like in a lawsuit. And like even in the judge's opinion, when he dismissed the case, the judge had to say, let me try to tell you what I think they are trying to say. And under any theory, they're barred by the statute of limitations and they're not actually asserting any claims. They're just basically saying a bunch of word salad so Donald Trump can try to raise money by filing this frivolous lawsuit. So this sanction motion, though, just relates to one individual defendant whose, whose case got dismissed. And that's Charles Dolan, who was a political advisor to Hillary Clinton, a former political advisor to Clinton. But as the judge points out in ruling on Charles Dolan's sanctions motion, the most basic facts were wrong. Like they said, Dolan lived in New York. He actually lives in Virginia. And when Dolan told Alina Haba that he lives in Virginia, Alina Haba's response is, well, there's a lot of people named Charles Dolan in New York, so whatever, like whatever, we're just going to keep you in New York. And while the judge said that's not really at the heart of what this case is about, it just shows you the cavalier way that they just make up stuff. And then the judge just went on to say everything. You know, here's another example, too. They said that Charles Dolan um, was the uh, chairman of the DNC. <laughs> like he was not the chairman of the DNC. Just another fact. And then they went through all the allegations. But Popak, tell us what this is. Rule 11 yeah. sanctions. Walk us through it. Yeah, I'm about to file a Rule 11 in a case. So I'm pretty well steeped <laughs> in the law. And you and I have talked about it in the past that Lawyers, although they get a bum rap, and and rightly so, some of them, like Alina Haba, others are members of a proud profession and um, governed by ethics rules and rules of the federal court system. When we say Rule 11, we're talking about Rule 11 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, which obligate any filing, any piece of paper that's filed on a docket in federal court to be signed by a member of the bar of that court. And that signature is not just the John Hancock. It is a certification by the lawyer as officer of the court that they have done the required due diligence and good faith analysis of facts and law prior to filing any paper in that courthouse. And if they don't, it's under penalty that they and or their client 
can be sanctioned by the judge, which is what we see happening here by Judge Middlebrooks under Rule 11, including both a monetary fine and sanction that just gets paid to the court registry, just gets paid to the court's general account and, and attorney's fees that the other side has suffered or incurred because of the bad behavior, the wrongful misconduct, can also be assessed by the judge. And the predecessor, the, the procedure for implementing a Rule 11, which is referred to in Judge Middlebrook's decision, is what we call in the business a 21-day safe harbor letter. So before you, you actually can file with the judge a Rule 11, you have to first give the other side an opportunity to withdraw, literally withdraw the offending piece of paper from the docket and stop basing their uh, their case on that filing, whether it's a motion or it's um, you know some other position they've taken in court. You have to give the other side at least 21 days. So you write a letter and you usually the letter is see attached draft or proposed motion for sanctions under Rule 11 the, that outline for you all of the places that your filing is deficient, defective, wrongful, fraudulent, frivolous, and the like. Withdraw it. If you don't withdraw it on the 22nd day, we will have the opportunity to file it with the court. Now, it's the first time, really, that the court gets uh, gets knowledge that there is a motion for sanctions. Judges sometimes invite the motion for sanctions. We we all thought, you and me, Ben, certainly that Judge Middlebrooks, in dismissing the amended complaint so vigorously with a 65-page decision— that he was inviting in many places a motion for sanctions under Rule 11. Or the judge also has the ability under his inherent authority and under another set of statutes to also impose sanctions. But this one is generated Rule 11 through... Yeah, the judge, the judge said, I'm maintaining jurisdiction in the event anybody wants to file a sanctions motion. <laughs> right, which, which is a dog whistle, file the sanctions motions, I'm going to grant it. And to your point, in this particular case, they got so many things fundamentally wrong about Charles Dolan. First of all, I'm not sure how close of a confidant or an advisor he was to Hillary Clinton, because the judge cited in his ruling that Hillary Clinton testified that she didn't even know who he was. That's one. He certainly wasn't the chairman of the DNC. He didn't live where they said he lived. And all of the ways that they reported his interaction with Igor Dechenko, who is one of three people that Durham, the special prosecutor, prosecuted as part of the Russia investigation and lost. Everybody will remember last month we talked about he did not get a conviction against Igor Dechenko. He walked out the wooden door of the courthouse, a free man. And um, it had to do with the Steele dossier, right, connecting Trump to Russia, sexual misconduct by Trump that the Russians supposedly had um, information about to use to extort him and the like. In any event, they mis, uh, misrepresented to the court in the filing and against Dolan his connection to Igor Dechenko, information that was passed or not passed to Charles Dolan from Igor Dechenko. It was just all wrong. And there is a repercussion for dragging somebody through the mud inappropriately in a public filing, and that is you're going to get sanctioned. The couple of comments that were made by the judge that resonated with me, Ben, and I want to hear from you is that the judge said 31 individuals and organizations were summoned to this court 
forced to hire an attorney and defend frivolous claims. And the common thread was just Donald Trump's animus. Powerful. The next thing he said at the end of it, before he actually issued the sanction, much the way we've seen some of the other judges that we've been very complimentary about, um, like uh, uh, Amy Jackson or um, you know Judge Howell, he speaking to, into, to speaking to the body politic, speaking to um, the the electorate, speaking to people of democracy, said the rule of law is undermined by the toxic combination of political fundraising with attorney's fees being paid by political action committees and reckless and frivolous claims by lawyers at rallies and in the media, right? And a uh, what is nothing more than a um, political narrative masquerading as a lawsuit, and therefore I'm going to sanction. I thought this was a very powerfully written um, Rule 11 sanction. And as you said, there are 30 more of these to come. So Alina Hobbit not only has to now stroke a check for her personally for $50,000 addressed to the courthouse, so it goes in the court clerk's fund, but she's going to have to do this again probably 30 more times. Yeah. And what it also says in the order, too, to jump off your point there, is when they said that, you know, he goes, who is responsible for this case and others like it? The rule of law is undermined by the toxic combination of what you just said, Popak. But then the judge says this, lawyers are enabling this behavior. And I am pessimistic that rule 11 alone can effectively stem this abuse. Aspects may be beyond the purview of the judiciary, requiring attention of the bar and disciplinary authorities. Additional sanctions may be appropriate, but legal filings like those at issue here should be sanctioned under Rule 11, both to penalize this conduct and deter similar conduct by these lawyers and others. So I think just like we read the tea leaves, Popak, on the last order that he was written, here what he's saying too is additional sanctions may be appropriate. I think he's talking about the inherent authority sanctions that he has, as well as the statute for attorney's fees that Hillary Clinton and all those other remaining 29 invoked, plus and, that yes, he's but, going to refer her to that's the it. state bar for disciplinary yes. investigation, meaning she may lose her legal license. We've always said here on the Midas Touch Network and specifically on Legal AF, that MAGA stands for make attorneys get attorneys. And we've said, we said, look, you know, you're going to represent Donald Trump now after seeing that all of his other lawyers have pretty much been disciplined. They've lost their license. They're under investigation because you can't work with someone like a Donald Trump. You know who's seeing this right now? Popak Christopher Keis is seeing this, right? Yeah. The former solicitor and, general and Jim, in Florida. And, and, Jim, and Jim Trusty. Yeah, you know, when and Keis took uh, $3 million from the Save America organization in the deal with the devil. He took $3 million bucks from an organization that's being criminally investigated by the Department of Justice for their defrauding of 
uh, of, uh, you know, engrifting the people there. Um, he himself, we talked about this, though, is a foreign agent of the Venezuelan Maduro regime. He's literally filed a Foreign Agent Registration Act uh, memo saying that he is. Um, but he has a reputation, at least, of being a decent lawyer. Like, that's what he was he was known as. Um made a questionable decision, putting it lightly, going and representing Maduro, Venezuela, um, and a worse decision representing Trump here. Um, but did you notice that his name was not on, Christopher Keiss's name was not on the submission of potential independent monitors who were submitted to Judge Engeron in that case, um, where Engeron's ordered an, an independent monitor in connection with his preliminary yeah. injunction, just Alina Haba was. And I thought it was interesting because in that matter, they recommended as the independent monitor, Alina Haba did, Barbara Jones, retired judge of the Southern District of New York, Barbara Jones. And I was saying, I did a video on this. I go, that makes no sense though. Barbara Jones was the exact judge that you objected to in the Mar-a-Lago search case where the Department of Justice recommended Barbara Jones's name as the special master. So you objected to her in that proceeding. You got Judge Raymond Deary, who now you object to everything Judge Raymond Deary does, including most recently, Judge Raymond Deary said he wanted to speak with NARA, the National Archives. Like, no, don't do that. We don't, we don't want you to do that. So you got Raymond Deary. You objected to Barbara Jones. Now you recommended Barbara Jones, and Kais is not on that brief, which just well, tells me Kais is he, like, what are these people doing? Well, look, I think it's clear now watching, as you and I watch the various lawyers come and go in and out of the Trump orbit, is that when, when Trump has a wild hair, and he wants to pursue it. He uses the weakest lawyers on his bench. In this case, Alina Haba and Ticketin, who's the guy that he went to uh, high school with, a uh, military academy with, who has a small firm you've never heard of in Fort Lauderdale. He uses them to shadow box and do all these things. The crazier the, let's do it this way. We can chart it. The crazier the position that Trump wants to take, the more likely it is that Alina Haba, now that Christine Bob has departed the scene and gotten her own lawyer, is the one who's likely to be advancing that position. And the more sort of serious or at least attempted serious or gravitas of his argument, the more likely he is to use somebody like Chris Keis. Or later in this podcast, we're going to talk about a new law firm that's that's uh, represents a lot of right-wing Republicans and is now representing Donald Trump in the um, Jan 6 subpoena issue. Uh, but Again, it's the crazy, the crazy frivolous scale. The higher up that scale, the more likely you're going to see Alina Haba, you know, being out in front. And and it, it wasn't lost. That point is not lost on somebody like Judge Middlebrooks, who who um, watches television, a surprise, and was able to catch that Alina Haba on Hannity made that crazy comment I know you commented on, mm -hmm. where she said that I had a conversation, talking about waiving privilege, attorney-client privilege communication with your with your client. Uh, she said, oh, well, Hannity, uh, you know, I had a conversation with my client. My client told me, Alina, Alina, I love you. Why are, don't take this case, the one down with Middlebrooks. You're going to lose. You're going to lose it. Don't do it. Why are you doing it? And, and uh, you know, she goes off and then rails against Judge Middlebrooks on, on uh, network television during the same thing. And Middlebrook said, you know what? I saw that clip. And that's the reason you, Alina Haba, 
are you put yourself front and center on this. You're the one that brought the frivolous claims. You're the one that's did the bad faith litigation. And so you're the one that's going to pay the price. And I got to tell you, I've been I've been involved with some cases where Rule 11 has been issued against my opponent. I've almost never seen a fine by the court to be paid into the court registry, in this case, $50,000. I almost have always, always only seen attorney's fees for the other side. It may be because Dolan's attorney's fees were relatively low here. He was sort of surfing behind some of the bigger fish here. You know, like Hillary Clinton's probably spent millions of dollars in attorney's fees. You know, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the actual chairman of the Democratic National Committee at one point. His fees as sort of the little guy was like 16000 And I'm sure Middlebrooks was like, you know what? $16,000 is not enough. I got to add a fine onto that that's going to go to the court registry. So I think that's why he did that. Yep. Hillary Clinton's attorney's fees, I think, were around $200,000. Oh, okay. Um, the other lawyers' fees were all in that range because they just- Well, they joined together. They joined together in one brief. Yeah. And they all submitted yeah. their attorney's fees and the total yeah. aggregate okay. of it's all the other lawyers' attorney's fees is $1,074,000. That, and that's still pending. My prediction, he'll grant those other sanctions, not the full amount, but yeah. I think we'll see a mid-six-figure sanction. Oh, yeah. Half amount. a million, Alina Haba. Yeah. He's going to have to rush stroke a check. So let's talk about this opposition brief uh, that Donald Trump filed in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. This is in the Mar-a-Lago search warrant matter. A search warrant was executed in Mar-a-Lago by the Department of Justice. A probable cause determination was made by Judge Reinhardt, the magistrate judge. Um, they found the stuff they were looking for, tens of thousands of government records, including our nation's highest top secret records that Donald Trump was concealing at Mar-a-Lago after lying to the Department of Justice for nearly two years and saying that they he didn't have the documents and that he returned the documents. Then he cherry picked some documents and said, hey, I gave you everything. And then he had one of his lawyers, Christina Bob, sign a declaration under penalty of perjury or just a declaration to the FBI, which functions the same way, basically saying we've returned everything to you in this Redwell folder. They didn't. They found the stuff at Mar-a-Lago. Trump goes running like 30 days after or 25 days after the search warrant is executed to uh, a judge in Florida. He, he fortunately for him, unfortunately for justice, drew a judge that he appointed. Judge Eileen Cannon became the judge, and she granted this ridiculous motion for judicial oversight, finding that she should just intervene in what's called equitable jurisdiction, meaning that there's no like statute, there's no law that says the judge should get involved. But in these extreme circumstances where these factors are met, like where you find the government engages in a, a callous disregard for the rights of the person that they're investigating, where there's irreparable harm to the person they're investigating, where the person who they're investigating has an urgent need to get the documents or whatever the fruits of the purported crime are, which are not, the person would argue, are not actually part of a crime, that they need this stuff back immediately, where those factors are met, a judge in the rarest of circumstances, then balancing other factors as well, can say, I'm jumping in. For justice, equitable jurisdiction is needed because so much prejudice is going to be caused because the government's just engaged in outrageous conduct. But 
Even when Judge Eileen Cannon asserted equitable jurisdiction on September 5th, she never made the finding of callous disregard for the rights of Trump. She said, and that she couldn't make such a finding because there was probable cause. The magistrate judge found probable cause. The search warrant was executed and they found the stuff that he stole that he shouldn't have had, the top secret records that imperiled our national security. But she did make a bizarre finding that Donald Trump would be irreparably harmed in his reputation would be hurt as a former president and that he needed these documents back. Uh, the, the what, one, what is she talking about? <laughs> and so what the Department of Justice did, because they had an urgent need for the top secret, the top secret sensitive compartmented information back and appeals take time, right? This happened September 5th. You know, we're still in the appeal process right now. The Department of Justice on an emergency basis sought very surgical relief to get the classified records back. Like our national security is imperiled if we don't have these records back. And I should also mention Judge Eileen Cannon then started this process with the special master. Um, the documents would go and be reviewed by the special master. And the Department of Justice just said, look, you're interfering with our criminal investigation. These records are ours. We're the executive branch. There's no claim that a former president can steal our records and block us from having a criminal investigation using our own records. This is so unprecedented. It's never happened before. And the 11th Circuit, in a very scathing order, agreed with the Department of Justice and said to Judge Eileen Cannon, look, when you found no callous disregard, the inquiry should have ended there. That That's the threshold question. But in any event, Donald Trump would not be irreparably harmed. And he doesn't have a need for these documents because they're not his. He stole them. Like, what are you doing? Give the documents back to the um, Department of Justice. So the 100 classified records were returned. Now we're dealing with the other 11,000 documents, which are part of this special master process. Judge Raymond Deary is the special master. That's who Trump's team suggested. Now they object to everything Raymond Deary is doing. Deary set deadlines in December, but this appeal process um, is set to end. Well, the briefing on the appeal is set to conclude on November 17th. So the Department of Justice already submitted their opening brief back in mid-October, and now Trump submitted his opposition um, this week. And now the uh, Department of Justice will respond on November 17th. But Popak, the arguments that are being made here are basically the same arguments, not basically, they are the same arguments that Trump made before the same court the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, when the Department of Justice appealed on an expedited basis, the classified records issue by filing a motion for stay there. And Trump's just basically rehashing the arguments that he already lost on, isn't he? He is, but with but with a new panel. So let me let me flesh out a couple of those things. When he brought his first appeal, the three judge panel ruled against him on the issue of the 100 classified documents being in the hands of the special master. The Department of Justice, as you said, made a surgical decision, a tactical decision at that time, not knowing the outcome, you know, having to, uh, you know, you, a lot of times you have to make decisions as a trial team and you're bargaining with yourself in the shadow of not knowing the result. So the Department of Justice said, let's do a surgical appeal, just focused on the thing we know we have the strongest position on, bar none, 
which is the 100 classified documents. And they won. And they got an amazing decision that gave them wind at their sail for all future appeals. Now fast forward, buoyed by the result, the Department of Justice has said, you know what, we're going for the full Megillah. We're not just going for the 100 documents, which we now have back in our possession and, and we're investigating. But the whole special master structure and scheme that uh, that Judge Cannon created that is moving along here because, you know, God love him, Ray Deary has a job to do and he takes it seriously and he's trying to get it done by the 16th of December, which is about a month away. But the fight now is whether from a precedent standpoint, because the Department of Justice is worried about that and future cases against not just Donald Trump, but the next Donald Trump, that they don't leave this bad precedent on the books, that a federal judge felt it was appropriate to exercise non-existent equitable powers to get in the way of the Department of Justice investigation of an ongoing criminal matter. So they're not content to just, you know, just hope and pray that Ray Deary sides with them by the 16th of December. So now this appeal is to a new three-judge panel, not the same one they were at before, and the but with an expedited briefing schedule, which basically adopted what the Department of Justice wanted, which was a very fast turnaround. So in this briefing, you are exactly right. What what Jim Trusty and Chris Keis, remember what I said earlier about the crazy graph, the crazier the arguments, the more likely you'll see Alina Haba, the more sober the position, even if it's a losing one, the more likely you're going to see Chris Keis or Trusty. Um, this is a Trusty Keis uh, production. And so they have now filed their briefing on Thursday that you've outlined. And I love this, Ben. I'm sure you caught it. In their briefing, they once again, not only repeating the arguments that were sort of losers with the first panel, the 11th Circuit, they said, this is just a document dispute that has spiraled out of control. Yeah, just like the Jan 6 insurrection, insurrection was just a capital tour that went south quickly. I mean, come on, gentlemen. I mean, you know, this is not just a, a, a good faith dispute about a few extra pieces of paper that Sticky Finger Trump took with them going out the door like, oh, I wanted that memento from this government. We're talking about a serious breach of every rule of law that relates to presidential records and what happens to a president when he leaves power. This president we know is delusional. We'll talk about it in the segment next about um, the the um, assertion of executive privilege by an ex-president. He believes in his mind that he's still the president of the United States, that he still should be accorded all of the immunities and protections that go along with being president of the United States, even though he is no longer, from executive privilege to testimonial immunity and everything else. And he should be treated that way. And he gets lawyers that will do his bidding for him and continue him to call him the 45th president of the United States. Of course, they take a pot shot at Joe Biden, because they can't help themselves, because Donald Trump is reading all their papers, when they say in their filing, Ben, that this is the administration of a rival is investigating Donald Trump. I don't think, to be honest, after the midterms, I don't think you can say that Biden is a rival of Donald Trump anymore, because I don't think Donald Trump is a viable candidate any longer based on the result. But even if even if they even if he was, they can't help themselves in their filing. This is going to come down to the continued proper 
analysis by the Department of Justice, which I think this new uh, 11th Circuit panel is going to adopt, that there can be no plausible claim of executive privilege by former President Trump over any of the remaining 11,000 pages of documents sitting with Ray Deary at all, and that the Taint team, which is their internal team that, that is separate from the group that actually looks at the documents, already identified the attorney-client privilege. Uh, there's like two or three of them, pieces of paper, gave them back or won't look at them, and that that's it. But it's not, I want everybody to be clear, it's not that they're just worried about Donald Trump. I think they feel pretty good about the Ray Deary process if they're forced to continue through it and that they're going to get most if not all of the documents back to continue their investigation, it's for the next Donald Trump or Donald Trump himself, God forbid, if he's reelected. And if you let these precedents sit on the books, you know it's going to happen. We're going to talk about it in other segments today. You're going to have, you know, very... Uh, entrepreneurial lawyers, uh, creative lawyers, waving these decisions around and saying, look what the 11th Circuit did, or look what Judge Cannon did, and you should do it here. And it just builds a false body of law that has to be nipped in the bud now for the future, for the, for the future uh, judicial precedent that the Department of Justice is going to leave behind after the Democrats leave office. Yeah, so two points I want to make and then wrap up this segment. So those factors that I mentioned before, the callous disregard for the rights of the person being investigated, whether the person investigating would be caused irreparable harm, and that person's need for their records back, that's a test called the Ritchie test, a 1975 Fifth Circuit case, but that's precedent in the 11th Circuit just based on the way the courts uh, expanded. That test is called the Ritchie test because there was a case called Ritchie, um, and there are other cases and other circuit courts that are very similarly stated. But here in this appeal brief, Donald Trump argues that the callous disregard standard is, should not be a threshold inquiry, which is exactly opposite what the 11th Circuit previously ruled. And in any event, the 11th Circuit went through the other factors. And to Popak's point, basically said, look, you can't be asserting executive privilege. You stole these records. And so I think the new panel of the 11th Circuit is going to look at what the other panel of the 11th Circuit did oh, yeah. and say, here's what you did. We're following what that per curiam decision was, meaning and, what that unanimous decision was. An, an 11th Circuit panel, just to you know square the circle, that got its position affirmed because the uh, Justice Thomas sitting over the 11th Circuit, referring the issue to the full nine-member Supreme Court, denied the emergency motion for stay, and left in place the ruling by that panel of the 11th Circuit. So, you know, the, the, the new panel is going to be in pretty good company in adopting many aspects of the, of the analysis that was used in the first decision. Yeah. And then the other argument Trump made, again, a similar argument that was rejected, the exact same argument that was rejected by the prior panel, was that Trump's lawyers are saying, you don't have jurisdiction to hear this 11th Circuit because it's not an interlocutory order or it can't be construed as the type of order a court of appeals can hear because they argue it just relates to a special master process, which is not appealable. And I won't get into the technicalities here, but the Court of Appeals previously rejected that and basically said whether it's our pendant jurisdiction, whether it's our interlocutory jurisdiction, whether it's our collateral order jurisdiction, we 
have jurisdiction. Stop telling us we don't have jurisdiction. We're the 11th Circuit. We know we can hear this case. And so that's another argument that Donald Trump spent 40 pages making. <laughs> Final point, Popak, which is what bothered me most is not just the frivolous arguments, because the frivolous arguments are just laughable and will be rejected, but just the statement of the case where he literally gave a complete fake version of what took place. And what they basically say is, look, during his term in office, President Trump was just exercising his discretion under the Presidential Records Act and was categorizing certain records as presidential and others as personal. And under the Presidential Records Act, at the completion of his term, the National Archives would assume responsibility for the presidential records, but have no role in the personal records. But nonetheless, they asked for all these other records back that he had classified as personal. Like, no, you didn't. You stole the records. You never classified it, these records that, as personal, nor could you classify the records as personal. And is that what? Yeah, sorry. Is that what Cash Patel now forced to testify to the grand jury after being given immunity, transactional immunity, being forced to testify and not hide behind the Fifth Amendment? Is that what Cash Patel has told the grand jury in Washington? You know, Trump and his lawyers have to be careful because they have the class, they're in the classic, what we refer to in logical reasoning as the prisoner's dilemma you know, which comes from a reference to having, you know, the, the police or law enforcement having two prisoners in separate rooms, neither one can coordinate with each other, and they don't know what, what each other is saying about the other. They don't know what Cash Patel has done in the grand jury room about these issues, yet they're way out on a limb taking positions in, in uh, signed pleadings and signed documents as officers of the court one way or the other. I would be very careful if I was a lawyer, even if you're one up the chain from Melina Haba up the food chain, and you're at the level of Chris Kais, I'd be careful about how I would depict things based on representations of my of my client, in this case, Donald Trump, who's completely untrustworthy. We're going to see it again when we talk about the, uh, the lawsuit filed against the Jan 6 subpoena by Trump and how they characterize um, what, what happened on the day of Jan 6th. Yeah, let's let's go right into that one, Popak, right away. Um, Trump was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. January 6th committee attached a letter to their subpoena. There was a document subpoena. The documents were like November 4th, I believe. Um, the Trump deposition was scheduled for the 14th. When the 4th came and went, Donald Trump said, look, I need more time, uh, which we knew uh, was just total BS. But the January 6th committee said, look, we're not going to move your deposition. Um, but if you need a slight extension as it relates to turning over documents, we'll give you that. And why the January 6th committee do that? Because they know it's going to be litigated and they don't want to see uh, being unreasonable to a judge that they gave no extension. So Trump can argue on a technicality. I was going to give them, but I got no extension. You know, So they forced my hand to make this objection. So they didn't want that to happen. Um, and then we said, look, there's no way Trump's showing up. Trump's a coward. You know, he in every one of the cases that we cover here on Legal AF, he does everything he can to avoid a deposition and and fights, you know, to the highest level of appeals, even to the Supreme Court to avoid having to testify. And then when he is compelled to testify, like he did in the Letitia James, New York Attorney General's fraud lawsuit seeking at least $250 million for the fraudulent valuations that Trump and the Trump organization 
determinations made on their properties. I plead the fifth. I plead the fifth. And the questions there are pretty simple, Popak. It's like the appraised value is this. The valuation is this. Why Why was there a difference? I plead the fifth. I plead How the many fifth. square feet is your triplex penthouse that you live in I, in I Trump Tower? What, what New Yorker, sorry, what New Yorker or apartment dweller doesn't know how many square feet his apartment is? I plead the I Fifth plead, Amendment. It may incriminate me. It may it may lead to my prosecution if I give the answer to how many square feet my apartment is. Yeah. So look, if you're pleading the fifth to the question of uh, what time did you walk your dog in the morning, you're not going to try to just walk into the January 6th committee. And we know, look, he is a coward. He is weak. We know those are his attributes. That was one of the things about the MAGA movement one of a number of things that just frustrated me the most is that all these people who pretend to be the tough guy, and it's usually the guy who pretend to be the tough guy, when they are then confronted with something outside of Fox or their MAGA echo chamber, they like run away from it. Meanwhile, you have a Benghazi investigation, which is totally BS to begin with, but Hillary Clinton goes, sure, I'll sit there 12 hours. Nonstop answers every single question, never pleads the fifth. And then you go, wow, that's really courageous of her. On the one hand, it is. On the other hand, that's what leaders are supposed to do. You know, leaders aren't supposed to be cowards and run away. But Popak, we knew he was never going to testify before the January how 6th. About, how about before you move on? How about when just to raise funds and to curry favor with his cult, his cult uh, followers? He, he remember when he bragged at some rally? All failed rallies, by the way. I, I, it doesn't matter who he was, except for J.D. Vance, who had his own career as an author. You know, everybody else that he supported is going down terribly in flames, which we might finally, that might be the final nail in the coffin for Donald Trump. Um, how quickly, how quickly people are running away from him and towards maybe DeSantis. But having said that, he actually said at one point, I would welcome going to the Jan 6 committee, but it has to be live microphones. Like he thought it was going to be like a rally, like he was going to do a rally where he gets to just talk at nauseum uninterrupted and, uh, and as opposed to testifying. And you and I were like, he'll never do that. That is just bullshit that he uses so that so that some voter of his in red meat America will say, well, my president, he would have went. He definitely would have went. But they had all <laughs> sorts of requirements like under oath. That's one good requirement. Yeah. And now what you know how they're going to spin. I haven't seen I try to stay away from Truth Social, but how they're going to spin this new lawsuit. And we'll talk, you know, we'll get into the nitty gritty of it like we like to do this new lawsuit which basically says under no circumstances is this pre former president ever going to testify to Congress because it violates the separation of, of the three uh, co-equal branches of government. And he has absolute testimonial immunity. And then we'll talk about the things that they cited for that, which is a letter from former President Truman and a, and a couple of misstatements about some Department of Justice positions in filings over the last, in uh, internal memos over the last 20 years. Not one case supports their position. Not one case. That's why they have to keep talking about President Truman's letter to, you know, to Congress because they got nothing else. But, you know, how they spin this, um, I would have gone, but... But what? Your lawsuit says under no circumstances will you ever go and testify at all about anything that happened while you were president, period, full stop. 
you know, in the statement that they put out, this David Warrington from the Dillon Law Group who represents him says, long-held precedent and practice maintain that the separation of powers prohibits Congress from compelling a president to testify before it. After the January 6th committee has undertaken the unprecedented act of demanding President Trump appear for a deposit. Let me stop there. You're not the president anymore. Stop well, with the weird shit. You're not the yeah. president anymore. Well, this is, the ga- this is the gaslighting that they do. Every When you really read, and you and I really read, you know, they're, they're filing, um, which, frankly, if you didn't, let's put it this way. Break it, break it down for us, Popak. Break it all down. All right, well, hold up. I, wanna, I, I will. But if you didn't know, I'm going to compliment them. If you didn't know anything about the last two years, any decisions in any courthouse, any rulings of any other federal court, and you just read this cold like you were a Martian that just got dropped in and said, let me read this thing. Like if you Great read English. Popa. Right. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> if the you Martian don't know reading, anything about anything, if you didn't know the law, then you didn't know it Trump. actually is a reasonably <laughs> coherent argument. It's some of the better writing. I'm going to give tip my hat, tip my my uh, my imaginary hat. They put sentences together. That's the standard yes. for the threshold. And, 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 to be, and to be fair, because I that you and I are always up front and on board. I know this law firm. You know this law firm. I've been co-counsel with that law firm in non-political business only issues. Okay. I'm always a little shocked when I see the other thing that they do on the side, which is to represent the total right, right wing of the party, like in Mike and Michael Flynn and there. But okay, it's a real law firm. However, to spend your entire time ignoring the weight of precedent, relying solely on a letter by by Harry S. Truman after he left office and a couple of distortions about some Department of Justice memoranda mainly about sitting presidents that were still in office not being called down to Congress. And I agree with that. Let's just put our cards on the table. If we lose the House, and, you know, we got to do an inside straight and pick up like, you know, nine out of the last 11 seats and they only have to pick up two, whatever it is, we're definitely getting the Senate. I mean, the, the numbers, just to digress for a moment, the numbers in Nevada look amazing. She's got to take that seat from Laxalt. I think she might, I think that Senator may even overcome the, uh, the recount requirement at all. Totally. So we're getting the Senate, but on the house side, the the decision, the decision desk has not yet called it. We cannot make a formal prediction here in the minus. Well, well, Popak will, she's 800 behind with 23,000 votes sitting in a mailbag and she's running 63% of mail-in ballots. She's winning this election. Having said that on the house side, we know what's going to happen because you and I are going to talk about it. If they get the house, if they get the house, it's going to be a whole series of bullshit kangaroo hearings again about Hunter Biden and Burisma and Joe Biden. And they're going to try to call Joe Biden as a payback as a sitting president to come testify to one of these uh, trumped up congressional hearings. And he's going to rightfully say, go pound sand and go F yourself. I'm not doing that. No president has ever done that. And I'm not going to do that. We're not talking about a sitting president. You know, Donald Trump did not have to testify to the impeachment committee, to the impeachment in the impeachment hearing, and he chose not to. And there was no way to compel him to do that. But here we're talking about, A, 
not his role as the executive, his role in fermenting discontent and creating an insurrection outside of his job description as president of the United States. And he's a former president. So what they filed, Ben, just as a long-winded way of finally getting there, in the West Palm Beach Division of the Southern District of Florida with a judge that has not yet been assigned, and I haven't been able to pull the civil cover sheet to see if if they've somehow checked that it's somehow related to Judge Cannon's case to try to get it in front of her. But assuming that they're not able to do that, I don't think, and I don't think this is technically a related case, even though it's the same plaintiff, then if the wheel's going to spin. They could just as easily, by the way, get Judge Middlebrooks, who sits in West Palm Beach, as they could anybody else. So let's see. We'll know by the time the midweek shows up who the judge is that's assigned. But regardless, this lawsuit, which seats a declaratory judgment that a former president continues to have executive privilege, that's one, that's going to lose, citing no precedent, really no precedent, attacking the the Jan 6 committee's jurisdiction and purpose. That's been litigated in five other federal courts time and time again, including Judge Carter that we've talked about in, uh, in California. There is no doubt that the U.S. Supreme Court believes that the Jan 6 committee was properly constituted and is doing a proper proper legislative function. Move on. It's exhausting that they continue to raise arguments and potentially frivolous that have been rejected time and time again by the highest courts of this land. Just because they've never got a chance to raise the argument doesn't mean it's a valid and not frivolous argument. You know, it's not like, well, I never got to argue it in front of this judge. It's bad law, and you know it is, and you should know it when you have filed it. Their next argument is that to force Donald Trump to testify to a committee that he said he was going to testify to is somehow a violation of his First Amendment rights. There's no First Amendment privilege. You have, yes, you have the right to, you have a right not to be sued for things that, that, that if you're expressing your First Amendment right to free expression, that's not a privilege that stops you from going and testifying in front of an August body like the Jan 6 committee. Um, and so all of these, the, this, this, this melange, this, this, um, this stew of rejected ideas with no case law and and running around with with uh, with Harry Truman's old letter in your back pocket is really embarrassing. But they're going to get a judge. They're praying. I'm sure they're lighting candles at Tiffany Trump's wedding tonight at Mar-a-Lago, which is happening. You know, they're lighting candles that they pull, quote unquote, the right judge. But I got bad news for them. There's not that many right judges other than Judge Cannon in the Southern District of Florida. And if they spin that wheel and it ends up in Fort Lauderdale or Miami, they're dead because most of the judges there are not going to side with them on these issues. And if they get Middlebrooks, which will bring special delight to you and me and our audience, we will dutifully report that. But, but you know, be careful be careful, new law firm that's now entering the fray. And I'm telling you, this is somebody that's been a colleague of yours in another case. You could get sanctioned in a case like this based on the positions that you're taking in this lawsuit. Popak, and I want to give a special shout out to the Jan 6 committee as well for anticipating 
that argument and specifically in that letter that the January 6th committee said they anticipated that Trump was going to try to claim some precedent that didn't exist. And what they wrote is we recognize that a subpoena to a former president is a significant and historic action. We do not take this action lightly, but as you likely know, you would not be the first former president to testify before Congress or to receive a congressional subpoena. Former presidents John Quincy Adams, John Tyler, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, Herbert Hoover, Harry Truman, and Gerald Ford each testified before Congress after they left office. President Roosevelt explained during his congressional testimony, quote, an ex-president is merely a citizen of the United States like any other citizen, and it is his plain duty to try to help this committee or respond to its invitation. Even sitting presidents, including Abraham Lincoln and Gerald Ford, also testified Justified before Congress. Further, both former and sitting presidents, including Presidents Nixon, Tyler, and Quincy Adams, have provided evidence in response to congressional uh, subpoenas. So they anticipated that argument, and we will see which ben, judge is drawn here. One, one last thing. In addition to, and, and we're not, I'm not making this up. I mean, we're, we're, we we call balls and strikes here. If there was more in their filing, if there was more law precedent that was cited. We would talk about it. Yeah, we're, we're not af- we're not afraid of it. The other thing that they cited in their filing, and we can leave we can leave the segment on this, is they cite a transcript of a hearing in front of Judge Nichols. Talk about not being case law precedent. A transcript of a hearing in D.C. court involving Judge Nichols and Meadows, in which the judge, not in his ruling. But in a comment in the room, made some comment that they thought taken out of context would help them in this filing. So they cite to it without also telling the court that Judge Nichols on Monday just rejected Meadows' attempt to dispa- to uh, to uh, refuse the Jan Six Committee on the very same issues. So this is again the same thing we saw with with Alina Haba in the other case with Middlebrooks, where th- where they like to talk about these other proceedings going around along around the country, but mislead the court as to the results in those that are not favorable to them. It's the not it's the number one thing you're taught in law school not to do. Don't mislead the court as an officer of the court. They ask you a straight question, give them a straight answer. Whether it hurts your case or not, you have to tell the truth when you're in court. Yeah, Mark Meadows lost the lawsuit that Donald Trump referenced. It was actually an October 31st ruling by Judge Carl Nichols. And Judge Carl Nichols found that the January 6th committee in Congress was actually immune from lawsuits brought by Mark Meadows under the speech and debate clause and found that he had no jurisdiction to hear it, even though the January 6th committee did not raise the jurisdictional argument before Carl Nichols. Carl Nichols ruled sua sponte on that one. And what is interesting to see is if the January 6th committee makes a jurisdictional argument here or if they will just focus on the executive uh, privilege related arguments and just that they have a compelling interest uh, moving on. But before moving on, I want to let everyone know about our Patreon website website. 
Um, if you support independent media like this or want to support the work that we do, I think the work we've done leading up to the midterms and for the past few years shows now that the importance of independent media actually focused on the issues, reading the documents, putting in the effort, putting in the hard work that the big major networks, the both sides networks, and of course, the pro-fascist networks are doing all completely wrong. So if you want to support it wherever you are in the world, go to patreon.com slash Midas Touch, become a patron. Uh, you can join one of these subscription tiers there. There's lots of great exclusive content there from exclusive uh, podcasts, exclusive behind the scenes, Q&As with me and my brothers. There's a tier where you could become an honorary producer of the Midas Touch podcast. There's posters and postcards and different membership tiers and so much more. But most importantly, you can help grow this independent media platform. And look, I know you probably have a lot of subscriptions. And so no worries if you can't. But if you can, wherever you are in the world, it does go a long way because we're not funded by any outside investors at all. We purely rely on you, the Midas Touch uh, community. And so if you can, go to patreon.com slash Midas Touch. And in addition, check out store.midastouch.com. That's store.midastouch.com for the best unapologetic pro-democracy gear. We've got the Row Vember shirts, one of the biggest smash hits of the midterm election season. And Rovember was the rallying call for the midterms. We got row, row your vote. We got convict or convict 45 shirts and other just great Midas touch gear as well. So go to store.midastouch.com for that. That's store.midastouch.com. Popak, let's talk about this criminal trial taking place in uh, Manhattan where the Trump organization is a criminal uh, defendant. Uh, they're a criminal defendant in a case where it is alleged that they engaged in fraudulent schemes to provide their executives with improper benefits that were not reported. They would like deduct their salary and then they would provide them stuff like tuition for their kids' private schools and apartments and all this other stuff um, that they weren't and it would not be reported to uh, tax and tax authorities. Um, Alan Weisselberg, who was going to be a star witness, the CFO of the Trump organization, has already pled guilty to you know a dozen plus counts, uh, felony counts of engaging in fraudulent uh, conduct. He hasn't testified yet. Um, an interesting quirk here is that it's the Trump organization that is the remaining criminal defendant. And so the outcome of this criminal case would really just be one, a finding that the organization is a felon um, and a fine of approximately $1.7 million. Now, if there's a finding that the organization is a felon, that will undoubtedly be used in other filings and criminal investigations that are taking place across the country. Well, not, and not it, just there, not just there. Remember, we yes. talked about this before. It has a tremendous negative impact and a cascading domino effect on the Trump organization's ability to continue to operate their business because they have, look, they, Donald Trump likes to act like he plays with his own money, but he never plays with his own money. It's always other people's money, whether it's a bank that's lent him money, a credit facility, a revolving line of credit, whatever it is. And all of them, I guarantee you, have two things. A personal guarantee by Donald Trump, where he has to pay out of pocket if that loan goes south, 
and a provision that if he goes bankrupt or if the Trump organization, which is the borrower, has been found to be committing a crime or even a regulatory offense, they could call the loan. And so all these banks, you know, will have to reassess if the Trump organization goes down for tax evasion, what that means, because they've got shareholders and they've got boards of directors and they've got a fiduciary responsibility to answer to some. Somebody's got to answer, why are we still in the banking business with Donald Trump after his organization, A, lost its uh, longtime CPA auditors who, yep. who, who left and said, you can't trust anything that we've said in the last 12 years and has now been convicted of 15 counts or whatever of tax fraud, why are we still lending the money or why do why haven't we called that loan? And if there's a run on the bank against Donald Trump, look, we just saw what happened to Sam Bankman-Fried at FTX, whose, whose net worth went from $100 billion to zero in two days. Something like that could happen to Donald Trump if all the banks decide that they can't stomach the risk any longer of being in business, in a lending business, with a, a an organization, the main organization, that is now convicted of tax fraud. So that brings us to the trial proceedings that have been taking place. There was a about a week or so long delay because the controller of the Trump organization, Jeffrey McConney, uh, got COVID and he started like literally coughing all over everybody, including the judge. And I think lots of people in that courtroom got COVID, but they're back in action and McConey's testifying. But Popak, I thought there were two key, you know, unexpected moments and McConey tried to judge, to try to dodge it. Did you see that? Like yeah. he wasn't exactly forthcoming with the testimony and the Manhattan DA, the prosecutors, did a really good job extracting the truthful information. And uh, the first thing that McConney claimed he didn't remember when he was asked the question was whether Donald Trump had knowledge of the scheme that's at issue in the criminal complaint. <laughs> and he goes, did, did, so did, was Trump aware that this was going on? And McConney's response was, you know, I, I just don't remember. He said something different before the grand jury. And so the prosecutor had his testimony ready to go. That's what we do at trials. We have all their testimony. So, you know, look, if you're going to be an honest witness, like I've done depositions where I had an honest witness, Popak, and it took 10 minutes. And I was like, all right, you've been honest. You told me the truth. I'm not going to spend six hours here. And then I've had the witness who starts in and like, you know, you know, they're going to be difficult. Like they, they want to play. They want to yeah. play. I had a witness where, you know, where the, the witness said to me right away, you know, I said, you know, where, where'd you, where'd you go to school? You know, he said, Georgetown when the qualifications were good. And I was like, all right, this is going to be a long one. Oh, let's, because you went, oh, because you went to Georgetown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, when the qualifications were higher. So right. I was like, okay, I guess, you know, let's oh, go through. Let oh, me it's, get my it's on. It's on. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get my binders. But right. the prosecutor had that ready. And then in the grand jury testimony, he had testified that Alan Weisselberg had told him that Trump told Weisselberg um, that he was aware of, of of everything that was taking place. So, so he impeached him. So he impeached him in front of the jury. Impeached him in front of the jury. And you may say, well, is that hearsay saying that someone told him something? No, because 
Um, an exception to hearsay is a statement by a party opponent. The Trump organization is a party opponent here, and Donald Trump, the head of its statements, could come in. It's also a statement against personal or pecuniary interests, another exception to hearsay. And the concept of that is why do we view that as not hearsay? Why do we view that as credible? Because Donald Trump could come in and defend himself and say, I never said that. But of course, Trump is going to hide like the coward that he is, and he's not going to come in and say that. So that information comes in. So that was a big piece of it. Another thing he showed McConaughey, who's the controller, is he showed him Trump's personal uh, ledger. And in Trump's ledger, they had notes kind of annotated on the side. And the notes, kind of handwritten notes that basically said, you know, per Alan Weisselberg. And in the ledger that was submitted to the grand jury, the notes were missing. But uh, the prosecutors <laughs> got the the actual books from Mazers, Trump's accountant firm, where the notes were there. So they asked McConaughey, they said, well, the notes seem to be missing in the one that was submitted to the grand jury. And McConaughey had to say, well, that could only happen if it was deleted. And the prosecutor said, so are you telling me someone someone at the Trump organization would have to delete those notes before going to the grand jury? McConaughey said yes, which is obstruction of justice. And look, one of the things that you and I said, though, is a possibility that comes out of this case, though, is other criminal conduct coming to light that can be prosecuted. And so we'll see what happens here. But that was two big updates from the trial. Yeah. And not surprising, Karen Friedman Agnifilo, our co-anchor, this three-headed anchor desk that we have at Legal AF, worked in that office and commented very favorably about Susan Hoffinger, who's the lead or co-lead counsel or prosecutor for the Manhattan DA's office on this case, and another one of her colleagues who um, Karen said is just the creme de la creme, just the 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 most tenacious, well-prepared um, uh, prosecutors, prosecutor that's on this case. Unlike Donald Trump, we spoke at length and at nauseum about his penchant for hiring low lowlights in the profession who aren't the most prepared uh, trial team in the room. That can't be said for the Manhattan DA's office, which is one of the most elite trial squads in the entire country always has been. I might have said this on an earlier podcast when I was building an in-house trial team at a financial services firm from scratch. My model, and when I recruited people, I told them this, was not even the U.S. Attorney's Office. It was the Manhattan DA's office led by then uh, uh, Robert Morgenthau, who's the model for every episode of Law and & Order, and then Cy Vance, not you know, another another thing. So another squad. So th it is not surprising to me. But again, this this brings up the point that you and I, you know, keep beating and it's not a dead horse. It's really important that prosecutors have to be more prepared than the defense and as prepared as they possibly can to put on a case against any defendant, especially one that used to be the president of the United States, because they can't be in a position to be kicking themselves because they left a stone unturned, or they didn't go after a witness, or they didn't try to uh, uh, bring down a privilege that was improperly asserted. And then they're like, well, we got enough 
It's not enough for a prosecution to think they have enough. They have to have more than enough because they have the burden in a criminal case. And if they're going to convict Donald Trump or a business entity related to Donald Trump, whether it's state or federal prosecutors, they got to be loaded for bear. And this team is. And the reason they, they're putting on people like this, look, they knew that this guy may get shaky on some of the key points and conveniently forget. And they got an amazing gift. They got the ability to impeach a witness in front of a jury. And it's and if it's lost on the jury, it won't be because there's an instruction that the judge will actually give at the end of the trial that says, you may have seen a witness that was impeached. Here's what it means, and here's how you are to interpret it. It's not a, it doesn't just uh, land in the room like, you know, anything else. It is a big deal when a major witness is impeached, in this case by the prosecution. And you were right to point it out as a tremendous uh, victory, uh, at least a battle victory for this trial team. And um, if this is the way it's going for Trump, after the first couple of witnesses, wait till they wrap it all up with Alan Weisselberg, who is staring at, he's only hes only going to get five months in one of the worst uh, jails in America at Rikers Island in New York, which is not a federal penitentiary. It is not where, you know, like uh, Maxwell is, Ghislaine Maxwell is serving her time. And so this is a hardcore Attica style uh, jail. And he's only going to get five months if he truthfully testifies. And they know what he's going to say. So by the time, at, at the rate that they are putting on their evidence and at the rate of success at which they are getting evidence out in front of this jury, I mean, I, right now, I think, I, I would think a jury in Manhattan, which is not really of Donald Trump's peers, but are people pulled from the voter registration of the Department of Motor Vehicles for the for the uh, the uh, county of Manhattan, the county of New York. I think they go down for these 15 counts. Um, but you, you and I are going to be on pins and needles to see what happens when Alan Weisselberg takes the stand. But don't un, no one should underestimate the prowess of this Manhattan DA prosecution team that's been assigned to prosecute the Trump organization. We will keep you updated on that prosecution. And as other blockbuster testimony is given, we will give you breaking news updates in addition to the midweek show and the weekend uh, show that we do uh, today. Um, now, let's talk about Popak. And uh, this one really, this one really hurts, you know, because it's so cruel. And the right-wing extremists, the Federalist Society groups, you know, which America repudiated in the midterms, but it just shows you why elections matter so much, because one of the things Trump was able to do is to appoint judges um, that the Senate confirmed um, who are like inexperienced and, and let's just be honest, like very cruel, cruel people who really inflict lots of harm. The same way we talked about at the outset of the show, those four right-wing extremists on the Supreme Court just taking a victory lap at the Federalist Society, drinking champagne and toasting as Americans suffer. Americans see what's going on, but it is very, very, very difficult 
to 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 address when federal judges are vested with a lot of of power and when there's a lot of trumpers on the bench and other right wingers on the bench it's very very problematic it's why elections are vital it's why control of the senate is so key because that whole process doesn't go through the house of representatives right it's nominated by the president confirmed by the senate that's how we get judges so the fact that and again Midas touch hasn't called it yet but control of the Senate is such a big thing. But this judge, Mark Pittman, it's like a tale of two Pittmans, right? In the Northern yeah. District, you got Mark Pittman, the Trump appointee, radical MAGA extremist Federalist Society. And then in the Western, you have Robert Pittman spelled yeah. with one T, not right. two T's. I got confused. I saw Pittman, my Pittman, Robert Pittman, who, who in Austin did those great rulings about about uh, SB8 and the abortion proceeding. And you you got me off the ledge with a text. You said, no, wrong Pittman. I said, okay. Yeah, yeah, no, it's Mark Pittman in the Northern District. But this case, you know, the Federalist Society flooded the zone, filed cases all across the country to uh, attack Biden's student debt cancellation program. And the heart of their claim is that the HEROES Act, which was passed in 2003, which was viewed as the enabling statute used by the, by the Biden administration to do the student debt cancellation program, what the right-wingers say is the HEROES Act just relates to military and military emergencies and doesn't relate to any other types of emergencies. That's their claim. To get to the merits, though, they have to find standing first and that someone was injured. And so I want to break down all those arguments. But the first thing I looked at was the standing argument here, because I wanted to see who's claiming they were injured. Because in all these other efforts, there were groups like the Brown County Taxpayers Association, this fake AstroTurf, you know, kind of made up group by right wingers. Um, that said that their taxes were going to be increased because they have to pay for the de student debt cancellation program, and that was rejected. You have the case that's currently pending in the Eighth Circuit, where the Eighth Circuit granted the emergency stay, which has blocked the program. And I think the Eighth Circuit did that back on October 24th, and they've just haven't done anything since October 24th, which I've done a video on that. Like, what the what in the world is the Eighth Circuit doing? But in that case, the state of Nebraska and several other states with Republican leadership claimed that they were injured because they their ability to tax people is harmed because they wanted to tax the debt cancellation as income. Like it's the most contrived argument. These states that basically claim that they're trying to lower your taxes, they go, no, we want to tax the debt cancellation as income, even though we're not doing it now in the future. And that's why we are injured here. And we get money from the debt can't from the debt collections agencies. So we're also injured there, which the lower court judge, the federal judge in the Eastern District of Missouri, who was a George W. Bush appointee, rejected and said there was no standing. But the Eighth Circuit granted an emergency stay temporarily blocking the program there. But that was the standing argument. So I go, what in the world is the standing argument here? And this one was horrific, Popak. So the right wingers got two students to sue. And one student named Myra Brown and another named Alexander Taylor, who have student loans. And Brown is ineligible for any debt forgiveness under the program because her loans are commercially held. And Taylor 
isn't eligible for the full 20000 in debt forgiveness under the program because he did not receive the Pell Grant and because he's only getting 10000 and not 20000 in debt forgiveness. Come on, Popak. That is the first off, you know, just horrific pitting students against students. But if that was the standing argument, then wouldn't we all have standing for everything? Well, I didn't get the bailout for the car industry. So I want, (laughs) I have standing to see you there. You didn't give, because I didn't derive a benefit. I'm, I can sue for anything. That's not standing. The status quo is the, is served, right? These people are not injured. Sure. Maybe they don't get additional relief, but the fact that they don't get those benefits does not give you does not make you injured. You, you're in the same position. So that's their standing argument. And then when I talk about the Heroes Act, let me just tell you what the Heroes Act uh, says and states. The Heroes Act grants the Secretary of Education the authority to, and here's a direct quote, waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provisions applicable to the Student Financial Assistance Program under title whatever of the act. And then it says, um, in connection, as the secretary deems necessary, in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency. And so it literally says, and then it says the term national emergency means a national emergency declared by the president of the United States. And so the judge literally read out the word and and struck out the word or, and says, no, even though it says or, and even though then it's defined what national emergency means, it doesn't say national emergency means a national emergency declared by the president in time of war doesn't say that. If it said that, then I would say, well, you have a plausible argument. That's not what it says. Um, And so they just said, no, it's it's just about war. And therefore, it was an unconstitutional exercise of the executive branch because they did not have the legislative authority under the HEROES Act to implement the student debt cancellation program. You would have to then pass a new law if that is what you wanted to do because Congress didn't authorize you, making it a separation of powers issue. And the problem with this, Popak, is that this blocks the student debt cancellation program. You know, it's declared unconstitutional. Now, the DO, Biden and, and his Department of Justice will appeal it to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, but that's all MAGA Trumpers on there. The Fifth Circuit, I don't think, you know, the one shot we have is the standing argument because I think the standing is so, if that's the basis of standing, everyone should be able to sue for everything. That is an absurd basis of standing, but I'm not confident that the Fifth Circuit is going to stay the enforcement of what is happening in the, um, what just happened by Judge Pittman. And then there's another challenge that we haven't heard with the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. And when a court spends a lot of time waiting like that, it's usually not a good sign because the issue here should be a simple one, that the states have no standing. The fact that the court has spent now three weeks 
you know, we're going to next week will be nearly a month that they've blocked the program. To me, that's not a good sign of what the Eighth Circuit's doing. And so you have the Federalist Societies attacking this from all angles. And I should mention this also, Popak, that the Trump administration declared a national emergency based on COVID and stopped the collection of student loans during COVID, which the Biden administration continued. But, you know, cruel for the cruelty's sake, these right wing MAGA extremists, you know, billionaire tax cuts fighting for, you know, you know, the richest of the rich here and just trying to screw hard working Americans. It's just, it's very, it's very disappointing. I don't have a great answer, Popak. I think the program is in real jeopardy. It's just the truth. Well, the Eighth Circuit's stay uh, killed the program for now. And this just put a, a stake through its heart because following the announcement by Judge Pittman of his order, the Biden administration announced that the applicant, if you go on their website for this program, it says that uh, all applications are now being uh, blocked, that we will not be able to process any of them or intake anyone until we, unless and until we get these things reversed. L- let, me, let me start with sort of a, a thought exercise with, with you and me. I want to make sure I'm right about this. We're not saying that there is no one out there who may have been injured and has a cognizable injury independent from taxpayer status that couldn't possibly challenge a piece of legislation or an executive action, right? You're not saying that, right? I'm not saying that. Right. And so there is a group of, there is someone out there who actually has a independent, um, unique injury or damage that would have the right to challenge legislation. And we're not saying on this show that Anything a president does, a president that we like, is unassailable and can't be challenged in a court of law under any circumstance. We're not saying that. What we're saying is that all of the plaintiffs to date, whether it be the states in the red part of the country who brought some asinine argument as to why they have standing independent from just being taxpayers, if you will, and why these two poor I mean, I, I, I got to think they've been misled by this um, right mega right wing group that's behind this lawsuit. By the way, I never thought, just as an aside, I never thought I'd be discussing a case that was called Brown versus Education again. You have Br- this case is called Brown versus the U.S. Department of Education. Um, I think and, it was intentional, too. I mean, uh, like, to- I think- totally was because they could have led with the other guy. No, they wanted Brown versus education as opposed to Brown versus the Board of Education. And so when you read the, the only way you get Pittman to make a substantive ruling and to be able to declare, as he did, this breathtaking statement at the beginning of his order where he says, this is an example of the largest, the largest um, uh, uh, excess of a legislative uh, undoing in the congressional history, in, in history. I mean, he just doesn't like the Biden uh, stroke of a pen executive order under the Heroes Act, which is which was passed after 2000, after 9-11, not necessarily a time of war, but a time of great crisis in this country, which is why the expansive language in the Heroes Act. And um, 
And so he wants to set it back to square one, claiming that it violates the Administrative Procedures Act because it didn't go through proper public comment, which of course would have delayed it for over a year or more, and that the and challenging the president's ability with a stroke of a pen under the Heroes Act to do this. There are people that would have standing to challenge this. I could think of a few of them, but it's certainly not two students who were left out of the program, and it's certainly not the states. But you've got the Eighth Circuit, like you said, taking its sweet time. I'm making a ruling we're probably going to like, not like. The only tea leaf reading we've been able to do at the Supremes is that at least when it comes to standing related to states and other organizations, they're not sort of buying that there's anything other than an improper taxpayer standing argument being raised, and therefore that the trial judge was right to reject it. But like you said, that they're just pressure testing. They're just they're just shooting a water cannon at all of the courts to see if they can get one drop through and get to a favorable judge and a favorable appellate circuit to try to take the case up to the Supremes. Um, the good news is Biden's not going anywhere. Biden is much stronger, not weaker since the midterms. I mean, credit to you and your brothers. I thought midterm night I was going to be curled up in a fetal position with a bottle of bourbon. And it turned out, wait a minute, we're going to do potentially better in the Senate? You if really thought that, Popak? Yeah, I mean, between you, me, and our audience, <laughs> I was worried. I underestimated me, you the, and a quarter of a million people. <laughs> I underestimated the that the abortion decision would bring so many women and young women and men who support women's issues to the polls on that single single issue voter you know event. The turnout of young people, of course, broke overwhelmingly for the Democrats. But but I underestimated Rovember. And it's in its power to bring people to the polls to register. And, you know, Democrats love mail-in voting. And we're really, really good at it, no matter how hard and how high you make the barriers and you create voter suppression. As long as there's a mailbox and there's a ballot and a stamp, Democrats are going to vote. And when they vote in large numbers, good things happen. And we saw that after the midterm. So, look, we're going to have to back to the case. We're going to have to see. We've got the Eighth Circuit. We've got the Seventh Circuit. It's all roads are going to lead to a U.S. Supreme Court. But I don't think it's going to be a U.S. Supreme Court. They're going to either accept or reject an emergency appeal on the shadow docket. And at the rate they're going, I don't think they're going to. But if they have competing rulings by by these jurisdictions, they're going to have to step into the fray and make a decision about this plan. In the meantime... People are suffering because they're having to write a check every month or have automatic deposits out of their bank accounts to pay for loans that will hopefully be forgiven. Yeah, you know, and, you know, for now, the student loan program and the collections has been stayed by executive order. And so we will see, will this have another extension as a result of this? Because it was supposed to, collections would resume at the end of the year. Um, once this program would go into effect. And to your point, Popak, Biden will fight for the people and Democrats are fighting for the people. And that is a silver lining. And, and the people recognize the cruelty inflicted on them. You know, Republicans were talking about 
you know, cat turds and weird Trump QAnon memes and owning the libs. And why I was very confident is twofold. One, Democrats were speaking to the people. And for all the complaints that Democrats have about messaging, Democrats were talking about real freedom freedom of a woman over her body to control her to control the decisions over her body right freedom to marry who you love right real freedoms freedom to get the government out of that stuff and americans were and uh, democrats were talking about you know jobs and healthcare and infrastructure and education and those issues and republicans just cruelty after cruelty to support the billionaire class and their cult but that fortunately was called out and so that's the silver lining to this and i have confidence you know and my confidence has been restored the second reason why i was confident in the results popak was because on the midas touch network we presented the data and the data from the early votes when we had tom bonier and simon rosenberg here the mainstream media was pushing narratives uh of doom and gloom and it was just not being reflected in the data and we had a big data set we had 40 million early votes which you can extrapolate a lot from a 40 million data set and you could see the trends happening and so as i said on the interviews with rosenberg and bonnier who were who are now being held as you know rightfully so as predicting something where no one else did you know we had them on and we were like look we're just going through the data folks like this is what the data is saying and we're not spinning it we're just telling you what it is which could be different on election day but this is what the data says for now but that's the exercise we do here on legal af it's similar to what we do on the podcast i do with my brothers in the political sphere where we roll up our sleeves and we focus on what the data is saying, not the spin, not whatever. I give you my opinion on issues because I have opinions and I tell you when they're my opinions, but to get to my opinions, I bring you and show you the evidence and what's being said, what the data reflects, and then this is why I feel the way I do. And that's what we do here. We show you the opinions, we show you what's actually being said, we show you what the judge is saying. We try to break it down in ways that are digestible, um, but here are the facts of the matter, not what the BS, you know, big networks are, are saying, unfortunately. And that's why, I love doing this with you, Popak. I so appreciate the legal AF community who watches this each and every uh, week, the midweek episode, the weekend episode that we do. And, um, you know, I, I'm optimistic. You know, I, I feel good. I feel very, it's a different feeling. Like, you know, I feel that the Trump MAGA, that concept right now is exposed. It feels little. It feels far less significant. And as he rants and raves on social media, it's just humiliating and embarrassing. And I think people are coalescing around that united front, whereas you just had Democrats 
independents and people who left the Republican Party joining together and, and calling that out. Thanks, everybody, for watching this episode of Legal AF. Please, if you can, go to patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Become a patron. Subscribe to one of the memberships there. It helps grow this platform in a big, big way. And we need independent media now more than ever. And we have no outside investors. We are purely funded by your generosity. That's patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Check out store.midastouch.com as well for the best unapologetically pro-democracy gear. Wear that Midas Touch gear with pride. Store.midastouch.com. Popak, final words. Uh, uh, you, you wrapped it up well. I am um, revved up and ready to go for post-midterm election prosecutions of everyone, including Donald Trump, all across America. You and I will talk about it more. Department of Justice is revved up and ready to go. Fonnie Willis, revved up, ready to go. New York Attorney General and the Manhattan DA's office already doing their thing. You and I are going to have an amazing amount of things to talk about, positive for democracy and for our justice system, um, starting in the end of this year and the beginning of the new year. This has been this week's edition of Legal AF. I'm Ben Micellis, joined by Michael Popak. Special shout out to the Midas Mighty.